This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And heads up at the beginning here. Apologies for my voice as my cold is still running around my sinuses. Far-right neo-fascist, illiberal, exclusively male organizations have risen to power recently. As today's guest will point out, they share a distrust of elites and expertise. They have a drive toward homogeneity as a prerequisite for public or for political life, and they embrace a constricted view of freedom, which means they are opposed to democracy and do not believe in human-made law, only what they call natural or religious laws, laws that are not natural and have little to do with religious with religion at all. Despite those shared beliefs, for whatever reason, the U.S. media seemed to be surprised when the far right here in the United States, including the Proud Boys, vo- voiced their approval of the Taliban defeating the U.S. in Afghanistan. I mean, it makes sense. Both have been victims of the West globalization, neoliberalism, and colonialism. In fact, neoliberalism at home is born out of colonialism abroad. Again, citing today's guest, neoliberalism itself was prefigured, if not actively constructed in the colonial world as a mode of utilizing the state to enforce a set of essentially anti-democratic policies that shield private enterprise from the redistributionist demands of popular sovereignty. Neoliberalism echoes the structure of relations between capital and the state that are familiar from the colonial era. And on top of all that, at the heart of neoliberalism and colonialism is a state reconfigured from providing social services to one that is heavily policed. Without a safety net, police budgets have nearly tripled over the past 40 years of neoliberalism, and there's been a rise in racialized poverty, increase in homelessness, and yes, more crime, which means our post-neoliberalism future will be one dominated by a new form of dominance like fascism, or it can be the alternative that the liberals feared the most, actual real democracy, the kind of democracy neoliberalism opposes. We'll find out how the culture war is really a war on democracy in a few minutes when we will be speaking with historian Suzanne Schneider, author of The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. Suzanne is deputy director and core faculty uh, at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Social Research. Oh, this cold is killing me. She is also the author of her 2018 book, Mandatory Separation, Religion, Education and Mass Politics in Palestine. Suzanne's writing has appeared in Mother Jones, N Plus One, The Washington Post, and Foreign Policy, among other outlets. And you can follow Suzanne on Twitter at Suzy, S-U-Z-Y, underscore Schneider. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, we haven't been together since uh, before the Labor Day weekend, so how have you been? I've been good, yeah. I used a day off, um, spent time with family, did some Rosh Hashanah stuff. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. So you're celebrating the high holidays right now? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's been great. Family's been great. Very cool. Uh, Did you hear about the uh, Trump and Trump uh, analysts or uh, broadcast announcing for the boxing match, the mixed martial arts fight this past weekend? Oh no way! He did. I didn't hear about that. Oh uh, yeah. Do you hear when the fight? One the mixed martial arts fighter was forty-four years old, I think, and he was fighting Evander Holyfield, who's fifty-nine. Right. I did. I saw headlines for this actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they had to stop it in the first round because he was clearly not in shape to box. 
So, yeah, I didn't see or hear anything about it. I just read a review of it afterwards, so I was wondering if you caught any of it. Being the boxing aficionado that you are, I would really like to hear what you have to say about Evander Holyfield, a 59-year-old fighter going into a ring. Um, I think it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think it is too. My plan uh, for the weekend was to do nothing, as in recuperate. Caught a, I caught a cold around Memorial Day that lasted throughout the entire summer until just before Labor Day, at which point I went to Michigan to officiate a wedding, and I caught another cold. On top of a flare-up of my chronic stomach issues and breaking a toe, my plans for the weekend were to do absolutely nothing. That was my plan, recuperate. However, my hopes were to do something, to do anything outdoors, because I've been cooped up inside, either because I've been sick, I've been working a lot, or it's just too hot to go out, or I got a broken toe, and this past weekend my plans to do nothing came to fruition, and my hopes to get out of the house also came true. We went for a walk in the forest preserve over at uh, Labaw Woods, and I actually saw four deer crossing the north branch of the Chicago River, which is oddly about four or five inches deep right now. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what lies beyond the final paywall? What <laughs> lies beyond the final paywall? Uh, I think it's Alexander Jerry who hosts our Patreon podcast, or hosts, I should say, produces. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to the listeners who showed their support over this past weekend, including Ron W. in Chicago. Thank you, Ron. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we will be announcing this week's winner of the question from hell. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what lies beyond the final paywall? What lies beyond the final paywall? We got an email from Brad R., who had the best answer to last week's question from hell. Brad writes, hi, Chuck. I haven't won many prizes in my life. A few small dollar scratch-off tickets a comped drink tab at bar trivia night. When I was 13, I won a cassette of Def Leppard's Hysteria album at a car dealership promotion when my dad was shopping for a new set of wheels after accidentally rear-ending a dump truck. But after four long years of answering the question from hell, I finally won, and I've never been more excited to win something. So no, I haven't won recently, but I appreciate you picking me even though you thought I might have already won. I will cherish my swag immensely, not just for my own sake, but because my answer brought some small measure of joy to you in these hellish times. Your show means the world to me, and I can't thank you enough. Take care, Brad. By the way, my choice is the unisex black t-shirt in extra large, please. Brad then includes his mailing address, and we'll be sending him his prize post-haste. Congratulations, Brad. I could have sworn you'd already won, but he's correct. Brad has not won in the past. Also, according to polls, did you know most people acquired Def Leppard's hysteria as a result of rear-ending a dump truck? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Swero. 
Writer Claudia Martinez has an article posted at mamaslatinas.com with the headline Latin Foods and Remedies That Help Get Rid of a Hangover. Claudia writes, Mexican suero is very easy to make. Suero is, is a popular Mexican hangover cure that's kind of like lemonade, except it uses salt instead of sugar. Basically, you make it with mineral water, salt, and lime juice. Mara Hernandez seconds Claudia in her, in her post at the other side of the tortilla.com, the best Mexican hangover cures. Hernandez explains, suero is like homemade Mexican Gatorade. It's a very simple recipe, and surely you'll already have all the ingredients, but it's the best remedy for any hangover, and it can also be used to help you recover from a workout. The salt helps you retain liquids after you've been dehydrated. Remember, table salt tastes saltier than kosher salt, which is usually what I cook with. Start with three-fourths of a teaspoon and add more if necessary. To make a suero, pour 12 ounces of cold agua mineral into a highball glass and three quarters of a teaspoon up to a full teaspoon of table salt. Squeeze the juice of one whole lime directly into the glass and stir to mix everything well until the salt dissolves. You can also toss in a few lime wedges if you like, add ice if you like, and drink the entire glass while it's still cold. That makes this week's hangover cure, suero, the supposedly best Mexican hangover cure. Would you, after working out while you're boxing, would you drink lemonade that has salt in it instead of sugar? Uh, no, I, w- I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either. I think that would make you puke. <sighs> Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, and if you'd like to support our horrible business model that puts people before profits, subscribe to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. and this podcast shortly after at the same place again, patreon.com slash thisishell. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, I saw something on the road when traveling to a wedding Labor Day weekend, and, and I cannot seem to get it out of my head. It was a car covered in political bumper stickers and decals. That's not what the stickers said that had such an impact on me, as I explained during the monologue. To be honest, I'm really not certain what the message was that was trying to be conveyed. But the sheer fact that someone, anyone, would brand themselves, period, I mean, what's the point? The next person to be converted politically or religiously by a bumper sticker will likely be the first. So why go through all the trouble? Why are we all branding ourselves, making us into commodities, things to be bought and sold, and your brand better stay on point or it's not authentic. Hell, we even do this here on This Is Hell. And on our most recent Patreon podcast, I describe my struggle, our struggle, with creating a non-brand, an unbrand, an anti-brand, and the contradictions of being critical of capitalism in a world governed by the market, where we depend upon the market for our very survival. Following my struggles with the very concept of branding, as it was the day prior to 9-11 on our last Friday Patreon podcast, 9-11 Eve, if you will, we shared an interview about 9-11, not the 9-11 in 2001, but the 9-11 in 1973, when the U.S. helped impose a dictatorship on Latin America's beacon of democracy at that time, Chile. The dictatorship implemented a constitution influenced by the heartless humans known with the names of Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, and Milton Friedman. Now the Chilean people are finally having a constitutional convention to rewrite the document document that institutionalizes neoliberalism. So we played our 2005 conversation with Peter Kornblu, the author of the Pinochet file and director of the National Security Archives Chile Documentation Project. Peter led the campaign to declassify official documentation of the secret history of the U.S. government's support for the Pinochet dictatorship, 
we knew that the following day 9-11 would be filled with U.S. media telling us to never forget 9-11-2001. So we thought we'd remind you to never forget 9-11-1973 either. The day the U.S. killed democracy with neoliberalism, a neoliberalism that definitely contributed conditions that led to 9-11-2001. But you can only hear my issues with everyone becoming a brand and avatar of themselves and how the U.S kill democracy by subscribing to the weekly bonus this is hell patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell coming up the far right's culture war on democracy from afghanistan to the united states we will also have this week's or this week in rotten history some of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what lies beyond the final paywall what lies beyond the final paywall and we'll tell you how you can be a member of the this is hell crew Live from the United States, where neoliberalism is the virus, this is hell, and neoliberalism is behind the rise of the far right, whether it's here in the United States with the Proud Boys or in Afghanistan with the Taliban or the Islamic State, wherever it happens to be. Neoliberalism has privatized nearly everything, including violence, which is increasingly conducted by non-state actors. And those non-state actors are not seeking real democracy. Instead, they demand a new form of fascistic dominance. Here to help us understand where the global culture war between capitalism and democracy stands and to hopefully give us a better understanding of where it may be going, historian Suzanne Schneider is author of The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Suzanne. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be with you. You can follow Suzanne on Twitter at Suzy underscore Schneider. That's S-U-Z-Y underscore Schneider. You start by writing that on November 14th, 1914, the chief jurist of the Ottoman Empire issued a fatwa declaring jihad on the empire's enemies. The empire had recently, if reluctantly, been pulled into the Great War on the side of the Central Powers and suddenly found itself at war with Britain and France, in addition to its historic rival, Russia. The circumstances surrounding the Ottoman declaration were quite unusual. This was a holy war fought in alliance with major Christian powers. It was moreover a jihad made in Germany, in the words of one contemporary observer, eyeing the millions of Muslims living under British and French colonial rule. German Orientalists and administrators hoped that a declaration of jihad from the Sultan Caliph would stir the masses to revolt. In this regard, the scheme was an utter failure, having no measurable impact beyond the empire's boundaries, but it remains illustrative of the exotic quality Western observers have tended to ascribe to jihad. Envisioning holy war as something apart from the quotidian mass slaughter taking place all around them. How is a holy war, in this sense, jihad, how is that holy war different in any way from what you call quotidian mass slaughter. And if it is not different, why do Western observers view jihad differently? So I think, you know, one thing we have to kind of wrap our heads around to answer this question is that jihad is not the same thing throughout the, the ages. Uh, it's a you know historical phenomenon that has changed radically and has particularly changed radically over the last hundred years as I chart in this book. And that the kind of fixation on holy war kind of clouds and obscures that. For most of Islamic history, jihad is simply the kind of Muslim way of warfare and the extensive juridical literature that's devoted to it is somewhat dry. If you're looking for sensationalism, you might look elsewhere. It's, you know, how, what types of weapons can be used, um, how, how, you know, places of worship should be guarded, what to do with kind of, uh, you know, members of the other side who have been captured 
so on and so forth. And it's taken for granted within this literature that jihad is a tool of states and rulers. Um, and this, so I would kind of make a case for thinking about jihad simply as war um, in kind of a parallel, uh, maybe to the way in which, you know, medieval or early modern, um, you know, thinkers were talking about war and just war theory and who has the uh, ability to declare war in the Western world. These discussions are not that different. Uh, they obviously each have their own kind of cultural resonances, but I think that the those have been amplified um, is part of in an attempt to make jihad this like truly exotic thing that we can't possibly wrap our minds around. So I think some of the mystique falls away if you just think about jihad traditionally as war. It's the type of war that Muslims would wage and that Muslim rulers and states in particular would wage. Um, what happens in, over the course of the 20th century, which I talk about, is that in kind of uh, like formal legal terms, jihad goes from being uh, a, 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 a tool of states, and that is war, to being something that is a insurgent tool or a revolutionary tool. So that's what we call terrorism, right? No longer directed by states, but often turned against them by people like Osama bin Laden, who does not have a state, who does not have an army to draft, who does not have any of the traditional credentials required to declare jihad. So the jihad that we encounter today is not the same thing as it was even 100 years ago, to say nothing of you know four or five or 600 years ago or a millennia ago. And understanding the ways in which jihad became unmoored from the state over the last century, and particularly over the last 50 years, I think can teach us something really fundamental about this kind of reconfiguration of violence in the neoliberal age. So you mentioned how uh, bin Laden's organization, Al-Qaeda, it more closely resembled an, an NGO or a corporate entity. So when he delivers his fatwa, was that unprecedented, uh, unprecedented until that time? Had fatwas always been imbued with the power of the state? Well, not necessarily with the power of the state, but the power of a kind of a recognized religious authority. Right. Certainly the power to declare jihad still kind of, I think, um, you know, up until uh, really Said Qutb in the, in the 1950s and 1960s is still um, kind of very clearly vested in the hands of the state. But, you know, bin Laden has no credentials <laughs> apart from like issuing a jihad. He has no credentials to kind of uh, to, to to issue, you know, fatwas, Islamic legal judgments to begin with. Right. Like many of the figures in this world. His training is in you know, civil engineering and business administration. He's not a product of traditional Islamic learning, uh, which is something that we see kind of across the ranks of uh, the Islamists and, and kind of uh, those who have kind of um, embraced jihad over the, you know, the last, again, half century, is that you know, many of these people are not, um, uh, and certainly the leaders of these circles, are not kind of the products of traditional centers of Islamic learning. Um, and that makes sense because the agenda that they are advancing is in many ways in um, really a direct challenge and confrontation to the kind of traditions of Sharia and to the, its practitioners. And you point out that uh, fifteen uh, that on uh, June twelfth, twenty sixteen, Omar Mateen he opened fire in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, killing forty nine people and injuring fifty three more. Twenty nine years old with a penchant for violence and in all likelihood an undiagnosed mental illness, not to mention turmoil stemming from his own conflicted sexuality. Mateen fit well into the pantheon of American mass shooters. 
Though this was the 133rd American mass shooting of 2016 alone, the mystical conception of jihad proved irresistible for commentators eager to differentiate homegrown white assailants from Muslim terrorists. Thus, Mateen was not a troubled young man like Adam Lanz or Devin Patrick Kelly, the perpetrators behind mass shootings at the Sandy Hook Elementary School and Sutherland Springs First Baptist Church, respectively, but rather a religious fanatic and had had sworn allegiance to the Islamic State and its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Joining the jihad no longer required migrating to a safe harbor for training or coordinating with operatives online, as it might have a generation earlier, but was rather a wholly self-directed affair. All that was necessary was a target and a gun, which, this being America, was e- were easily available. Has jihad become a kind of dog whistle within the U.S. media and popular parlance? And if it is, what is the dog whistle alerting its audience to? And who is its audience? I mean, I think that this case of Mateen is like what was really um, illustrative in terms of like the media and kind of uh, law enforcement responses to this. Right? There is all of this kind of and the same thing happened, you know, after the shooting in San Bernardino, um, you know, kind of a few months prior also by a couple who had sworn allegiance, um, you know, to the Islamic State, that, you know, depending, like, are we going to completely lose our shit over this, or are we going to just, like, assimilate it into the everyday course of normal life, uh, like another mass shooting, and really, like, determining the motivations of the perpetrator, that is that is the key thing here. Um, you know, if, if we can see that they've sworn allegiance to the Islamic State, then suddenly this becomes a counterterrorism mission that this becomes something that we will kind of sacrifice anything in order to to protect against but in the instance that it's just like your run-of-the-mill mass shootings that'll like dominate the news cycle for a few days and then we just kind of like go back to business as usual um and i think that there's something uh, really again really fascinating about these examples because they really push at the um that you know, we really want to differentiate between quote unquote our violence and their violence. We really want to, you know, have this idea that we have this clash of civilizations and that people who engage in jihad are come from this entirely different culture and, uh, they're, and they're anti-modern and they don't share our values. Right. And all of that stuff. And then you find these instances where the line, the boundary between our violence and their violence becomes really blurry. These are precisely the moments that um, I think, you know, the 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 certain like a certain elite class like springs into motion to try to reassert this distinction, to reassert this division. No, 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 no. We're these these things. These things have nothing alike. Um, and that because it is actually a lot more troubling, I think, um, to have to regard this as as a continuum um, to say that it's not that you know omar mateen is shooting up a kind of nate club in orlando because he is part of a you know medieval islamic community that's trying to resurge in the modern era but because there's something kind of fundamentally uh, rotten at the core of our modernity and that modernity is shared even if it's experienced differently in different places um so having a wanting really trying to distinguish between our violence and their violence i think is a mode of system preservation um for the west for capital to say oh no 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 don't look over here certainly none of these like political and social crises 
stem from the world that we live in, that we inhabit, that all we have to assign that to something else. So yes, whether it's the medieval holdout, whether it's holy war and this kind of very exotic, um, you know, uh, uh, variation, it's the Islamic world. It's something that has nothing to do with us. Um, uh, but we need to do that not only so we can kind of justify certain types of violence against, uh, you know, abroad and against Muslims at home, but also for the, again, the sake of system preservation and of reassuring people that there's nothing fundamentally askew in the social and political order that we take for granted. Is that unique to Islam or do we feel that religion kind of lives in a vacuum off on off by itself and is unaffected by the world around it? I mean, I think that broadly speaking, right, um, people tend to think of religions as these like essential things that exist in the same shape and time um, over history. And that's simply not the case. They're historically embedded they, you know, they change and people fight about them. And that's not like a weird thing that is kind of constitutive of them. Um, but I think that with uh, with regard to Islam, uh, it's it, it, that kind of general, uh, I would say, like sloppiness when we in terms of a really like lack of theoretical sophistication of how we think and talk about religion is kind of taken to a fevered pitch because we have this, you know, particularly coming after 9-11, you have this whole, um, you know, crew that will argue that Islam is not only is, is Islam a, a, a kind of an essentially a monolith, right, a singular thing um, that exists in, uh, in without much diversity the world over, but it is like tied to a particular type of like violence and enmity against the West that has jihad as its mode of actualization. And so Islam is essentially violent uh, in ways that like other religions are not uh, regarded as being or in the ways that other religions maybe used to be, but they were vanquished by the Reformation, for instance, and now we've moved on to these more civilized times. Um, so there is a way in which these kind of like, I would say like fairly like uh, um, like uh, theoretical reflections about religion and whether or not they're, you know, singular entities, right? Can we talk about Islam in, at all in the singular? I don't think so. It'd be much better if we just talked about Muslims um, and recognize that like some Muslims do some things and some Muslims do the opposite thing. Um, but we don't have that level of sophistication in our discussion um, largely. And when it's then when it, you, you tie that to the notion that Islam, this thing, again, which we've defined an, as an abstract essence in the singular terms, is uniquely violent. It's essentially violent. You can't get away from it. Then I think you set yourself up for justifying the type of uh, imperial violence again abroad and kind of you know surveillance uh, regimes at home that we've seen since 9-11. So why the stress on and even the manufacturing of this idea of Islamic continuity? Is seeking continuity an inherent issue with the study of history, whatever that history is, you know, just seeking the historical context? Or is there more of a stress on continuity when it comes to Islamic history? Because I understand looking into Islamic history to trying to understand its contemporary nature. I understand trying to find that historical context. So is there more of a stress on continuity when it comes to viewing Islamic history? I mean, right, I'm a historian. I certainly advise people to look into history to understand context. But the, um, you know, the problem with the explanations about kind of contemporary jihad is not that they're trying to root this in history, but that they think that Right? You can explain the Islamic state by looking backward into what the Quran said or what the Hadith said, rather than looking sideways at the forms of violence that proliferate in our you know, contemporary society. And that seems to be me to be a erroneous approach. Um, not Again, not because the history is, is, is unimportant, but as I kind of point out in the book, 
right? The Quran has existed in this form for, you know, 1400 years. Um, much of this medieval writing about, you know, apocalyptic traditions, you know, again, have been with us for many hundreds of years. So explaining why these things take hold and are interpreted in the ways that they are and really like reseed themselves and take root at particular moments is not something we can just answer by recourse to theology, basically by looking backward. Um, and so I do think that yeah, it's like necessary to know these things. It's But one of the one of the things that, again, comes out by studying this history is not continuity, but rupture that looking into the history of jihad, you can see, oh yes, there's something fundamentally different here with what's happening in the 20th century, where jihad is no longer a tool of states, where it is directed against states. And in the, in the case of the US, they're enablers, right? Where it is taken upon, where individuals take it upon themselves as something they can uh, take part in in, in, in in vigilante style, right? Rather than being called up to jihad in the way that you would be conscripted for a war, suddenly they take it upon themselves as vigilantes to go and be, you know, the, I don't know if we want to really get very uh, close to home here, to be the forces of law and order. Um, so that is, we, we can't just explain that by reading the Quran. Uh, we have to, you know, understand the ways in which, um, you know, religious ideology is really embedded in these material circumstances and it's constantly refreshing itself. It's constantly innovating, even if it claims not to be doing so. Indeed, the claim that it's not innovating is itself like a very kind of mark of, of something wholly modern. Um, so I think we have to, you know, again, all for looking backward, but then sometimes what happens when we look backward is that we discover rupture, not continuity. Yeah, and this, I was really fascinated by this because you uh, talk about this way that they try to, uh, you know, stay relevant and they are constantly innovating the religion. Religions are constantly changing. But at the same time, so many religions constantly are saying, we are the most authentic, pointing towards the past. So how can you both be innovating, changing your religion, and at the same time, pretending or at least claiming that you're part of the past? Isn't there a conflict there? I mean, on, in logical terms, sure, but it's <laughs> right, something that we see, um, it's something that it's, it, it's incredibly common um, among kind of, you know, reactionary religious movements who claim that they're doing nothing other than the, the you know, the, the, the core principles as stated in the holy text. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's been a very fruitful, I think, subject for scholars of religion to trace the ways in which those claims usually are, um, you know, kind of, dis, uh, kind of, you know, dissolve under any sort of scrutiny. Um, again, like, truly traditional people do not walk around talking about how traditional they are. Like, this is a construct of the modern world itself uh, uh, that kind of comes out of, you know, both wanting to deny that world on the one hand, but being unable to escape its logic on the other. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and it becomes tied to various political and social projects, again, that are kind of incomprehensible uh, outside, of, outside of modernity. You also point out that within the West, there are two primary views about Islam that circulate today. The first is a dystopian narrative that trades in camp images of bloodthirsty horsemen riding out of the desert with a sword in one hand and the Quran in the other, forged against the background of long-standing political conflicts between European powers and their Muslim rivals to the south and to the east. This Orientalist vision depends on an ontological divide between the West and Islam, in which the latter is associated with all those undesirable traits supposedly vanquished by European rationalism and modernity. In this view, Islam is seen as a threat to Western civilization. Is Islam an existential threat to Western civilization? After all, the current jihad 
seems to be targeting the very concept of the nation state. So is the goal to end Western civilization to some degree, at least, as we know it? Um, I, I don't think that jihad is an existential threat to Western civilization. I think actually jihad is it's impossible for me to think about it as being anything other than not just a product of Western civilization in a real and like a, in, a, in, in material terms. Um, if you think about like the history of these movements uh, and how they've grown under neoliberal auspices, but really at a much deeper level. I mean, the baseline assumptions of these movements are themselves wholly kind of, um, you know, familiar for those of us who are scholars of Western civilization. So whether you look at the ways that kind of uh, the fetishization of the individual and the uh, kind of making the individual the kind of primary social and political actor, if you think about like the new visions of community that uh, they're advancing that are totally globalized, that absolutely um, accept the kind of, you know, logic of globalization, um, you know, even the movement beyond the nation state, like that's part of Western civilization too. Like that is what corporate power is. That is what the multinational corporation is. That is what super sovereign power, which is the place that we are going to, um, uh, is. So it's, you know, there's a way in which these are, you know, make, there's a mirroring effect here, not a negation effect. Um, so that's like one of the reasons I think like the clash of civilizations framework, it doesn't do us any favors because it actually um, uh, obscures the ways in which, um, you know, these like seemingly exotic, et cetera, like Islamic militant groups share so much of the logic of, of liberalism and neoliberalism in particular. You mentioned the Mapping Militant Organizations Project at Stanford University. Its research indicates a compelling trend that is stable across many conflict zones, where in the relative quiet of the 1960s and 1970s gave way in the 1980s to a new wave of militancy by Islamist actors who both supplanted earlier organizations and drastically outnumbered them. The pattern in Pakistan is rather typical. The Balakistan Liberation Front, described as an ethno-nationalist, separatist military organization fighting against the Pakistani government for an independent Balaki state, was superseded in the 1980s by a dizzying assortment of Islamist groups, splinters, and rivals. Why was was this turn? Uh, was this a turn towards Islam and politics, a politicization of Islam, if you will? Because this is right around the time of the increased politicization of Christianity here in the United States. And I'm wondering if there's a link there. I definitely think that there's a link and the link is, you know, something along these lines, right? That many of the, um, right, many of the countries where uh, like Islamic militant groups are kind of now operating, they have a shared history um, uh, as kind of colonial possessions that uh, gain their independence often in socialist or kind of quasi-socialist revolutions, um, you know, throughout the mid uh, 20th century. Um, there's this kind of great moment of revolutionary hope that is, you know, within a few decades though has has been dashed, um, as instead it's as each country has its own specificity, of course, but they, um, right, many of them kind of decline into this like period of authoritarian rule, uh, where right the promise of the revolution seems to be squandered, and just like we've had like an indigenous elite that has replaced the colonial one, but we're left with a state apparatus that's every bit as um, as coercive. 
And, but on, on, so that's kind of one side on the other side of it, right. You do have some real advances that happen for things like land reform, for instance, or attempts to build, you know, real like public services, um, uh, you know, particularly in a place like Egypt, um, that's associated with this kind of revolutionary period. Um, the pivot toward Islamist politics, you know, is something that both regional actors themselves, like Anwar Sadat, and of course the United States, embrace as a counterweight to the left. So, in given, remember this in our kind of greater Cold War context. Uh, you know, this is the, the this is the place also to think about American support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Right, as a counterweight to the left, uh, growing out of a really older colonial view of religion as a stabilizing force, as a conservative force, as something that kind of will maintain the status quo and that can be like unabashedly pro-capital uh, in a way in which these like new socialist revolutionaries surely were not. So I think in accounting for why is there this Islamist pivot, well, there's a few things that are kind of a few interconnected things happening. One is that these groups and organizations are encouraged. They're encouraged by the U.S. They're encouraged by kind of local powers um, as a kind of counterweight to the left and as a way of kind of to squash the left. And then certainly since, you know, uh, 1989 and kind of after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, really the left is has you know loses its its uh, any patron that it might have within uh, kind of the Middle East North Africa region. Um, and what are you left with? What is your alternative? What is the one thing that the government cannot outlaw uh, in these states? Um, you know, religion, Islam in particular, and Islamist politics become a kind of politics in a world where there is no alternative. Uh, and I think that it's really kind of important to understand that rise against the kind of gutting of the left that was quite, you know, purposeful throughout the, you know, the end of the Cold War period. So why do you think the left was seen as a greater threat than the rise of Islamist militancy and uh, political violence? Well, I, I mean, because of the because it, I mean, the left obviously is a greater threat to capital. Um, right. Many of these many of these Islamist groups are like they are, can fully accommodate themselves to capital. Um, right? the, remember the Taliban in kind of negotiations for various pipelines and such in the 90s, uh, you know, before they were overthrown, right? You certainly see this with regard to, you know, the nature of like, uh, you know, governments that are nominally Islamic in the, in the Gulf that are, you know, certainly on board with a kind of capitalist uh, agenda. Um, I think it is a, right, we have, there's a, you know, when you, when you put religion to instrumental use, you don't actually know what you're going to get. And so if you think about religion as this force that's just going to be conservative and support the status quo, like it can do that, but it can also do the opposite. Because again, religion is not just one thing and the people who practice it are multiple as well. Um, and so I do, you know, again, I actually, this was like the subject of my first book, funny, like it, it's kind of all coming back in terms of the way that, you know, British colonial administrators really viewed religion as a stabilizing force, a conservative force uh, in Palestine and were shocked by the ways in which religious, you know, texts, ideologies and traditions could actually be harnered, harnessed to revolutionary mass politics. Um, but it's, you know, so we have, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a, the, the motion here is, 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 has, you know, is fundamentally the same um, in thinking about these uh, forces as conservative, um, as, you know, uh, as able to accommodate themselves to the forces of capital. Uh, as this counterweight to the left. Um, and, and they are, by and large, those things, that they might also become militants and attack you. That wasn't in the plan, 
Um, but you know, again, when you're when you're playing with uh, with 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 religion and trying to put it to instrumental uses, you can't really control for what the outcomes are. We are speaking with historian Suzanne Snyder, author of The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. You can follow Suzanne on Twitter at Susie underscore Schneider. That's S-U-Z-Y. And I am telling you, this is an absolutely mind-blowing book. I really, really was enjoying reading this. You write that change is less an aberration than the norm. Fundamentalists might deny this fact, but I see no reason why scholars need to join their choir So is fundamentalism legitimized by an analysis that sees it as some older, more authentic kind of Islam? And if so, why don't analysts then offer an analysis that does not legitimize fundamentalism and instead reveals it as something new that is not from the past, but a byproduct of modernity, as you call it? Why not give that analysis? So yes, I mean I think you're 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 absolutely accurate on that. Right, fundamentalism, I write, is this kind of it's a wholly modern uh, phenomenon. Um, even the term itself is you know dates only from the early 20th century, um, and it doesn't necessarily map perfectly onto uh, an Islamic context. But certainly, um, uh, yes, this you know we we give a lot of kind of credence to. Um, you know, these very right wing and reactionary movements when they are presented as like, oh, this is how things used to be. And now there are these modernizers and there are these reformers and they want to do something else. Um, but again, like a, just a tiny bit of scratching beneath the surface, we'll find out that the thing that fundamentalists claim is the like most essential pure expression of religiosity from time immemorial is itself like often no more than a few decades old. Um, I don't know why, honestly. Um, uh, other than kind of supporting, again, some sort of broader clash of civilizations thesis. Um, particularly, like, mainstream journalists uh, don't do a little more. They're, they're so credulous with these claims um, often about, you know, the Taliban saying Islam says X, Islam says Y. Um, I honestly, I, I thought that, like, Brooklyn Institute needs to offer, like, a writing religion class or something so people who work in these worlds can come and learn how to talk about religions in ways that are um, that, that are not just more accurate, but that maybe can also uh, support some, like, better better policy outcomes as well. You write that examining jihad alongside contemporary social and political formations in the West underscores a common nihilist thread, one characterized by the inability to imagine a different sort of life here on Earth. From this perspective, the apocalypse and the end of history appear less like oppositional projects than different symptoms of a common and wholly modern malaise. A nihilist being a person who believes that life is meaningless and rejects all religious and moral principles. How does neoliberalism lead to a globally held belief that life is meaningless? So, I mean, again, I think it's there's some different manifestations of this, but like um, maybe it's worth kind of just saying how I kind of got here, but, you know, thinking if, for instance, about the apocalyptic um, references that are really became um, a, a key part of the Islamic State's propaganda, um, right, that these things were often taken as evidence of some sort of medievalism, um, some sort of medieval quality. But again, like this literature has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why is it resurging at this point and not in other points? Um, why is it that the kind of pursuit of one's own death, which is so theoretically dicey within a kind of traditional religious frame, why has that become something that is so celebrated and glorified here? 
Um, and I, you know, I, so I think these are like slightly different instantiations of the same phenomenon, which yes, is a, um, a kind of hollowing out of our vision and our political imagination, our social imagination for what a future might look like. So on the one hand, you have a kind of just, uh, you know, a, 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 a kind of an, a nihilist impulse that yes, that kind of rejects um, really any possibility of like human life or human flourishing is almost an anathema. Um, and in the Islamic State variety, I think that this is what's behind the apocalyptic turn. It's that the apocalypse is like the safety hatch, the, the way out and kind of the seeking of one's de own death is the kind of premier form of agency because you've fundamentally given up on creating a different sort of world. Um, and particularly when the kind of options and the alternatives that you forward that are supposed to kind of create right, a different social order, the caliphate, et cetera, are still so steeped in neoliberalism's logic. It can't really provide an alternative. It, what it can provide is a, a yes, again, like an escape route um, through the elevation of death as the premier form of agency and the kind of the, the and not just, you know, one's own death, but also the death of others. Um, yeah, I find it, again, hard to think about that trend um, within Islam, which is so recent, right? We should just underscore how incredibly recent this is, um, uh, that, you know, even 40 years ago, this was not a, a common phenomenon. First suicide bombings are like, no, are about my age and I'm only 38, right? This is just a very recent phenomenon that's now been absorbed um, uh, theologically. Um, and yeah, I mean, can we, you know, should we, what does it mean if we want to put those aside, these kind of instances of nihilist violence in the West, whether they're kind of, uh, you know, mass shootings, et cetera? Um, like, where does that actually leave us? Um, and for me, the thing that it points to is, again, this idea of like that real, the human, human bodies are disposable. We are utterly disposable within this order. Um, maybe there's some sort of kind of uh, spectacle that one can enact before before the end, um, but there's kind of not much that one can do beyond that. There again, I, I really believe this is a social symptom of a hollowing out of uh, kind of possibility and a sense of uh, futility. Um, and, and that it's important to kind of understand nihilism, not as just something that kind of like floats in the ether, but as something that might have some sort of material basis as well. You write that the Islamic state is no way alien to the modern world, but rather exemplifies its rationale. The transformation of jihad over the last century parallels a broader shift away from states as the chief wielders of violence, and that the empowerment of individuals and a wide variety of non-state actors is perfectly compatible, compatible with the logic if not the intent of neoliberalism. So how much of a threat is neoliberalism to the security of the nation state? Is it a, is it a threat to the very nation state it's supposedly trying to reinforce and support and promote? Yes, I mean, I think that neoliberalism, uh, right, is undermines any, I mean, almost like by design, undermines national sovereignty. All right, like people on the left are often accused of this, like, oh, you want like global government or something like this, right? But actually, we already have some version of global government through these, you know, international institutions that are supposed to monitor, monitor finance and banking, right? They're like the, 
I don't know. It just, it's like in the world in which Amazon is like a quasi sovereign power in many places, it's hard for me to think about like the nation state as being the, the, the end game here. Um, and that, yes, I mean, that is what neoliberalism wants. It, it wants, um, you know, the kind of, at least the ability, if not for people to move freely, then certainly for capital to move freely. Um, right. National boundaries are are, 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 are are a thing of the past for multinational kind of corporations, almost by definition. Um, so, you know, I, I and I think that this is where neoliberalism, at least, you know, domestically comes um, uh, right, comes against it's these kind of like creatures that it did not necessarily mean to spawn. Right. Um, these kind of far right and reactionary groups who are opposed to, you know, maybe 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 they do have some sort of material or economic base, but they're opposed to kind of the outsourcing of jobs, their you know, response broadly to the increasing increased precarity of American workers, you know, so on and so forth, and who will kind of embrace these, you know, very like nationalist solutions to economic management, for instance. Right. That's not what neoliberalism wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but the again, like the the intents and the uh, effects here are not um, necessarily fully aligned. Um, in the same way that right people, I found this very striking during the uh, you know January sixth insurrection, right? That the you know people would say people who are participating in, in in the march would say like if we can't get the state that we need, if we can't get the government that we need through traditional means, then we have to like do something else. So it's not that people have given up on the state or that they don't want anything from the state or that they're not going to look for the to the state. They're only going to look to the market to solve their problems. But when the state fails to govern and it fails to be a kind of a, a force that can intervene in people's lives uh, in a positive way, that will lead them to entertaining various other options. So yes, maybe the military could rule more efficiently. Maybe a, a strong man could take over and you know, um, and, and cut through this kind of this this bureaucracy and, and drain the swamp to do what to create a state that delivers for you, right? And so again, this is not certainly like you know Hayek and Milton Friedman are not thinking along these lines, but these are the social uh, kind of the fallout and the repercussions of neoliberalism and the kind of selective hollowing out of the state. So why don't you think they saw that outcome eventually being inevitable? Because it seems like all of their writing and the philosophies of neoliberalism point towards the destruction of the state and the replacement by corporations. So why didn't people like Friedman see that coming? I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think right in the in the world in which Friedman was living, the marketplace would step in, right? With with minimal state intervention, you, what you do is you remove the number of um, of issues that have to be solved politically as opposed to those that can be solved by the market. And if you believe that the market is this like super rational kind of, you know, this like super cal calculator that has way more information, right, than any human being could ever uh, individually have, and thus is uh, is far more rational, then it's almost like a quasi-deistic view of the market as a tool for solving, you know, various problems. And again, taking them out of the political realm, right? The goal is that these things are not adjudicated by citizens in a political sphere at all, but that they can just be solved in the marketplace. Um, and I think if you have that view of the market as this, again, like almost, again, like, like this self-sustaining quasi mythical, um, uh, uh, like, um, yeah, almost divine thing that, uh, that, 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 that exists outside of sort of like human support or tampering. And we know that it's just like a fallacy, but if you have that idea toward the market, 
then yeah, why would you necessarily think that it is going to um, uh, devolve into something like the OTverse? Um, right. I think this, like, you know, that all of these assumptions that people had about the, the the functioning of the market under neoliberalism have kind of proven themselves to be fallacies. So I'm not terribly surprised that they also didn't see the, you know, social repercussions down, you know, several decades down the down the pipeline. Who knew that the market wasn't benevolent? I, exactly. I could have swore it was. I thought it was always on our side. You write Islamic reactionary elements find their mirror image in formations closer to home, including a Christian nationalist movement that is, as journalist Catherine Stewart has aptly characterized it, authoritarian, paranoid, and patriarchal at its core. They aren't fighting a culture war. They're making a direct attack on democracy itself. In your opinion, is the current culture war, uh, the current culture war that we hear talked about on a daily basis, if not an hourly basis on places like at places like Fox News, is the culture war in the U.S. today a war on democracy itself? And if so, then why doesn't the media, why doesn't any of the media or the Democratic Party call the current culture war a war on democracy, if that's what it is? So, yes, I mean, there's a I, yes, I think it is. And, and in a few different ways, um, uh, um, right. On the one hand, it is a, it's increasingly, it's a minoritarian like position, right. It's an anti-majoritarian, uh, position that's being advanced here, uh, particularly as, you know, and, and, th- you know, through all sorts of mechanisms through of course, like something like the Senate through gerrymandering at a kind of, you know, state level, um, and so on and so forth. I think there is a recognition that this is not a program that can be, um, advanced and won democratically in a majority sense. The, why is that the case? Well, because the GOP doesn't actually have much other than culture wars. It doesn't govern. It has not governed for a very long time. Again, kind of growing out of that exact neoliberal framework, right? You're supposed to take as many things out of the political uh, political field as possible. The market is supposed to solve everything. So you have a real crisis of state capacity. You have a real crisis of governance. Um, but and 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 you have in terms of like you know uh, a political platform something that's not very attractive on a policy basis right there's all of these polling about what people actually think you know apart from uh, political affiliation what they actually think about various policy ideas whether they're infrastructure or kind of climate related or you know decriminalization whether they're related to you know expanded education or healthcare right these things are very very popular with the american people if you don't want to enact them, if right, if you do not want to, if 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 your if your kind of chief goal of your party is to serve the needs of capital uh, at a very kind of rarefied level, like you have to offer something else. Um, right. So kind of the 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 you know this these are because people often talk about like the good old days where there were like respectable Republicans who you know were just like fiscally conservative, but they were socially liberal. Um, right. And but the reality is because that fiscal agenda is such a loser, it does not serve the needs of the base. You have to offer something else. And culture wars have become that that you know that really really key thing for the GOP. They figure this out over the last several decades and they're very very good at it and it distracts from the fact that they're not able to really govern so it is um anti-democratic in a few different ways not just because it's uh, anti kind of majoritarian in that pure sense but because it advances an agenda which is anti-democratic which is serving the needs of capital above the needs of pretty much everyone else 
You talk about how neoliberalism prioritizes uh, private profits over public good, a process that was born out of colonialism, a process that we often saw in colonial states, uh, colonial rule in Asia, Africa, and South America. So in that sense, are the citizens and residents of the United States now the victims of the same processes that victimize those around the world world who have responded with non-state violence? Is the United States, through neoliberalism, no longer occupying foreign lands, but applying that same occupation imperial strategy against its own people. Are we getting a taste of our own mess, uh, medicine and the, and the reaction is a violent far right? Yes. I mean, I do generally think that the reason that so much of um, what we're seeing today, um, you know, when you think about like the just blind eye toward kind of mass like pollution or uh, doing away with kind of work like worker safety regulations, the um, you know the kind of race to race to the bottom like tax incentives like we had here in New York City with Amazon recently, right? There, these things all have this like strange familiar ring to people like me who are trained as scholars of colonialism in like an earlier period. And I'm like, oh, because that's what's actually happening here is that the state is just is just serving as a tool for advancing the interests of capital on the one hand and preventing any sort of democratic mobilization or resistance to the status quo on the other. Um, and, and, and yes, I do think that that is one really productive way of understanding neoliberalism is a attempt to, um, to bring that kind of classic colonial relationship between the state and capital um, and thinking about the state uh, as, as, as chiefly a mechanism for preventing democratic resistance to the rule and interest of capital of, of bringing that home and applying it right here. Um, and right, and it doesn't look exactly like it does in uh, you know various like places in, in in the global south and the kind of colonial or post colonial world, of course. But yeah, we're beginning to see little little bits and pieces of that. Um, and 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 yes, I do think that that is a one way. So I'm not going to say the only way, but certainly one way of understanding neoliberalism is the kind of application of that colonial relationship with capital um, at its helm uh, back into the very heart of the West. You also point out that from Hobbes onward, liberal political theory has viewed the two ideas of, uh, now I can't remember what they are, as mutually constitutive, uh, that is the uh, security and sovereignty. The basic premise is that every individual has a natural right to self-defense. The social contract is the mechanism through which people join together to create a civil society, and it requires giving up the natural recourse to violence for the sake of creating a system of law in which all are subject. Protection against violence constitutes the state's basic function and, per Hobbes, the basis of its legitimacy. The sovereign who cannot ensure the security of, its, of his subjects, likewise, has no claims to their obedience. If we only give obedience to a sovereign who can ensure our security, then our security must be the sovereign's top priority. But as Ben Franklin famously said, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. So to what extent do we give up our liberties in exchange for security from a sovereign now? Are we no longer paying for security with our obedience alone, but our freedoms as well? Can the sovereign essentially hold us hostage with the threat of insecurity forever? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few different ways you could think about this question, right? One is in the kind of, um, right, the global trend toward, uh, uh, you know, kind of authoritarian capitalist regimes, 
Um, but that ones that will say like, like whether it's Singapore or Saudi Arabia say, Hey, you know, we're going to, uh, uh, you know, you're going to have a fairly comfortable life. You're gonna have a fairly comfortable existence. Um, uh, but you're not really allowed to contest this existing regime. So you see, you know, kind of, um, uh, instances like that, where I think is very close to what you're talking about, where the sovereign will use the existence of some sort of security as a way of, um, uh, kind of squashing any sort of, um, you know, potential opposition to their rule. But I think what I would like people to do is to think about that word security in a much more expansive way than uh, is typically done, right? Security is not just your bodily security. Um, and I think that we've seen the failings of this thinking through the war on terror and the ways in which the war on terror and this kind of, you know, this constant quest for security through force has, um, you know, has helped justify uh, a variety of kind of, uh, um, you know, in, not just infringements on civil liberties uh, and uh, at home, we think about, you know, surveillance um, of Muslim communities or, you know, listening to in, into your phone calls, all of that jazz, it's kind of well known and, and documented, but also this incredibly violent regime abroad. Uh, right, we'll kind of we're, we've done war and terror operations in like 85 different countries. Um, how many of those countries really have the legitimacy of their people? How many of those countries are we just propping up uh, state security forces that are already violent and repressive and hoping that somehow by doing so, we will get to this legitimation crisis, which is in fact kind of you know powering their fragmentation and the creation of militant alternatives. Um, so I think we have to kind of break out of this thinking. I mean, I, 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 we, you know, Hobbes is writing in the 17th century, and I think that the you know view of what security is needs to be updated um, and and expanded. Um, and when you do that, when you're thinking of security, not just in terms of like, is my body free from harm, right? But can we think about security much more uh, akin to some sort of like real human flourishing? I think it becomes very evident that that is not something that you can gain through co like, co like uh, uh, coercive measures. It's not something you're going to gain just through, you know, better or more efficient state violence. Um, and we see this both again at home and abroad where every social and political crisis is something that you can just throw, uh, you know, either military or policing or prisons at. Um, right? These are interconnected phenomenon. We need to think of them as interconnected, but we need to articulate uh, on, uh, not just alternative uh, views of what security really is, but also alternative pathways to get there. Ones that do not rest on state violence, but rather on state capacity um, and, 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 and reinvestment in places where it's actually needed. Just two more questions for you, I promise. You write that far too many words have already been uttered in furtherance of deciding whether the Islamic State is really religious or not. Did the group grow out of the inherently violent and fanatical nature of Islam, or was it a consequence of material and political conditions, in this case, the regional instability and power vacuums left in the wake of the disastrous invasion of Iraq? You then quote historian David Cook, writing in his 2005 book, Understanding Jihad, the number of apologists who claim that jihad and terrorist activities carried out by radical Muslims have nothing to do with Islam or are solely the result of poverty or colonialism or other Western evils is still depressingly high. There is no lack of, observer, of observers who will ask in bewilderment, what was the cause of this? Even as an attacker says that his or her primary motivation stems directly from the Quran. To you, 
why is an attacker saying I did this because of Islam not evidence that the attacker was motivated by their religion? Oh, well, it's not that I don't think they're motivated by their religion. I think that they've come to experience their religion in this particular way um, uh, for reasons that are embedded in material conditions, right? Like, again, like if you say, I did this because of the Quran, it's like, okay, well, then why don't we have many instances from all these past centuries of people going in, um, you know, and, and, and attacking people in this way, right? The Quran has been with us for a really long time. So why is it in this moment over these last, you know, 30, 40 years in particular, that we have such a proliferation of these types of violent attacks? Like, you can't just explain that by saying uh, it's from the Quran, right? What, we, what is important here is that it's a, there's a network of interpretation, right? There's, there's, there, that, is, that is being activated here. There are militants, there are militant scholars and communities who draw on the Quran, absolutely, um, and say, well, actually, this is what is demanded from you at this particular time. And what they're often advancing is something which is kind of quite contrary to the majority opinion of Sunni jurists for centuries. So the idea that one, that jihad is an individual obligation that someone can engage in outside of a framework of a state, right? This idea is no longer, no older than, you know, in the 1950s or 1960s. So this isn't just something that comes from the Quran. And the interesting work for scholars is to understand the ways in which these kind of new conditions of interpretation and new like interpretive possibilities um, arise because of modernity, because of its crises, and then they absorb, you know, these traditional texts and canons. So it's not that these, you know, that certainly there is a mode of religiosity right now that has this kind of militancy at its core. You can't just explain that, though, by recourse to uh, an Islamic textual tradition that's, you know, several uh, centuries old. One last question for you, Suzanne. We've been speaking with historian Suzanne Schneider, author of The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. Suzanne is also author of the 2018 book, Mandatory Separation, Religion, Education and Mass Politics in Palestine. You can follow Suzanne on Twitter at Suzy underscore Schneider. That's S-U-Z-Y. One last question for you, Suzanne. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, (laughs) or our audience is going to hate your response. You write far from belonging to a different history. Rock has been rebuilt as a neoliberal laboratory in which everything is for sale, producing its own gilded class, not of tech entrepreneurs, but of militia leaders and contractors to the U.S. government. The results have been predictable. Numerous armed separatist groups vying for power, a government that few trust, a fact that facilitated the Islamic State's rapid spread across Sunni regions, and protesters taking aim at the staggering levels of inequality and ineptitude of the government response. Is not only the U.S., but the entire world's future under neoliberalism, Iraq, and has Iraq in any way delegitimized neoliberalism to the elected political leadership in the United States, which seems to embrace neoliberalism in a bipartisan fashion. No, I don't think that it has. I mean, so yes, I think that again, like part of the, one of the very dark theses of this book is that this is not right. Jihad is not the past. It's, it's a possible future. Um, and understanding the hyper modernity of it is, is, is quite crucial, um, you know, for that reason, but no, I don't think that, anyone has taken that lesson uh, for a lot of reasons, one of them having to do with the fact that we don't 
tend to think of foreign policy and domestic policy as being linked um, in any ways, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. It's not the way that a lot of our uh, certainly like elected politicians, but even like, you know, policy analysts, uh, you know, tend to think um, about the, you know, the ways in which these things are intertwined. But right, obviously, it's the, the bigger issue is just system preservation. Um, to recognize the disastrous effects of neoliberalism abroad is also to have to reckon with those legacies at home. Um, and that is simply not a project that many people um, who are elected officials have the stomach and have signed up for. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it is the question from hell, see? I already hated your answer. Suzanne, I really appreciate your, you being on the show. I would love to have you back on the show at some other point. We could have talked about this book for three hours. I literally had 82 questions written for you, and I think I got through oh, a third Lord. of them. So thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. Take care. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. Go ahead. I dare you. Email me at chocolatethisishell.com and try to. This is hell. If what you just heard from Suzanne on capitalism v. democracy and the possibility of a coming apocalypse, if that made you angry, sad, anxious, or you were in some way enlightened, deprogramming yourself from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you that talk made you feel like you actually learned something or realized that, yes, this really is hell, Please show your support by either becoming a subscriber to a weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. And I think this Friday on Patreon, I'm going to be talking about a front-page article that was on the September 11th, 2021, New York Times this past Saturday, which was just the most insane view of the world and how they believe the world should view the United States. It was just it was just rich with nationalism and nearsightedness and it was just really problematic. So I think I'll be talking about that because it's really getting me angry. And I like to talk about stuff that makes me angry during the Patreon podcast. Jess, please remind us what's this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is what lies beyond the final paywall? What lies beyond the final paywall? Kim G says Dr. Bronner's magic soap. Oh God! There's a documentary about Dr. Bronner's soap and how uh, this guy who's the actual heir of the Bronner's fortune goes around to talk to people who use Bronner's. Every one of them is a freaking stoner and wants to get him high, and he's like, "I don't smoke pot." It's a very funny documentary. Uh, Bradley R says God's favorite content. <laughs> okay. Prove us wrong. Fabio <laughs> um, L. Uh, the, the first paywall asking you to renew your subscription. <laughs> That's Z a good one. Zach N. Wallpaper. Okay. Nick A. Europe on repeat ad infinitum. <laughs> what lies beyond the final paywall? Um, John T. The paywall resurrections. <laughs> um, Ram D. An expose finally revealing Obama's last name. <laughs> Kevin W. The Paradise of the Objectivist Elect. All right. <laughs> Sloan L., Our Freedom. Uh, Borky B., Just Another uh, Crappy Barry Weiss Article. <laughs> yes, that's probably the case. <laughs> what Lies Beyond the Final Paywall? Um, Kenneth G. says, Sci-Hub. 
And last for today, Aaron D, trillions in NFTs. Oh, Jesus. We will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what lies beyond, beyond, I keep saying I wanted to say behind. Again, the question from hell is, what lies beyond the final paywall? What lies beyond the final paywall? Person with our favorite answer wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can leave your, your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, or email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history, on September 15th, 1945, 76 years ago this Wednesday, the Austrian composer Anton Webern, one of the most important figures in 20th century music, was struggling to make a living. Makes sense in a world where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Artists are always struggling to make a living. Webern's conducting career had been disrupted by the chaos of World War II, and though he had expressed some sympathy for the Nazi regime early on, his views had changed after his son was killed and his own austere, rigorous compositions were denounced by the Nazis as so-called degenerate art and cultural Bolshevism. Despite the Nazis denouncing cultural Bolshevism, Fox News and those on the far right still pushed the obvious lie that the Nazis were so socialists, which is just not the case at all. Even Hitler joked about how he used the term socialist. On the verge of a nervous breakdown, Webern had finally left Vienna, but now the Nazis were defeated. Austria was occupied by the Allies, and Webern could relax at the home of his daughter in the Austrian town of Mittersill. But this is rotten history, so you know Webern's story doesn't end there. After a peaceful family dinner, Fayburn stepped outdoors to enjoy a cigar given to him by his son-in-law, a former SS member who is now running an illegal black market business. Former U.S. or former U.S. former SS officer turned black marketeer. Okay, seems like the kind of person you should definitely trust when they're giving you a cigar. But while Fayburn was outside, I swear I thought the cigar was going to blow up and kill him. When Webern was outside, two American soldiers showed up at the house to arrest the former SS officer turned black marketeer son-in-law. When one of the Americans, Private First Class Raymond Bell, stepped back outside and saw the tip of Webern's cigar glowing in the dark, he took aim with a revolver and fired three shots. Within minutes, Webern was dead at the age of 61. Ten years later, Private Bell himself would also be dead. According to people who knew Bell, regret over the mistake drove him to drink himself into an early grave. Webern's music, meanwhile, would become a major influence on composers as diverse as Karl Heinz Stockhausen, Pierre Boulet, and Frank Zappa. Okay, first, a tip from your friends here at This Is Hell. Never smoke, never smoke a cigar or anything outside when there are paranoid people with loaded guns lurking about. Big mistake. Second, if your son-in-law joins the Nazis and then turns into a black marketeer, expect the cops to come knocking. And when they do, they will have very, very itchy trigger fingers. Finally, war sucks. Let's stop acting like everyone is a hero who serves in the military. Carrying the burden of killing for the rest of your life is not a heroic act. And the fact that so many impose such a cruelty on the troops they supposedly support is a tragedy. You want to support the troops? 
then end the forever wars that still continue, even though Joe Biden says he's ending them. There's plenty of them. They're all over the place. And they'll continue as long as the United States has its global complex of around 800 military bases in about 80 countries. And I say around and about because all you can find online are approximations as nobody apparently actually knows how many military bases the U.S. has or in how many countries the bases are located. How can you support the troops when you don't know where all the places where all the places are that we're currently fighting wars, all the places that we're currently stationed around the world, or how massive the U.S. military presence is worldwide? How can you support the troops if you don't know anything about them? In Rotten History, September 15th, 1963, 58 years ago this Wednesday in Birmingham, Alabama, at that time one of the most racially segregated cities in the United States, a dynamite charge planted under the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church detonated just as a Sunday morning service was getting underway. The explosion killed four young African-American girls between the ages of 11 and 14 and also seriously injured another 22 people. It was just the latest in a series of racially motivated explosions that had earned the city of Birmingham the nickname of Bombingham. And get this, they called it Bombingham because between 1947 and 1965, the town's residents experienced at least 50 bombings. One neighborhood had so many bombings, they started calling it Dynamite Hill. News of the 16th Street Baptist Church blast provoked a wave of outrage across Birmingham. Then two African-American teenage boys were shot and killed, one by police as he ran down an alley and the other by a group of white youths as he rode his bicycle. Dr. Martin Luther King sent a telegram to Alabama's white supremacist governor, George Wallace. It read, quote, the blood of our little children is on your hands, unquote. The FBI would later conclude that the church explosion had been the work of four Ku Klux Klan terrorists, but no one was prosecuted for the crime until 1977. One conspirator received a life sentence at that time, and two more were convicted in 2001 and 2002. The fourth man died in 1994 without ever being formally charged. So according to the Anti-Defamation League, there are currently seven operating Ku Klux Klan organizations in the United States. Seven. You'd think with their centuries-old history of terrorism, you'd think U.S. law enforcement would bring those organizations to justice. But for some reason, and I can't put my finger on it, they're allowed to continue to exist. I wonder what is about the KKK. What is it about that white supremacist terrorist organization that Johnny Law lets them to continue? I I just can't put my finger on it. What is it about that white supremacist group? Finally, in Rotten History on September 16, 1973, 48 years ago this Thursday, the Chilean singer, songwriter, theater director, and political activist Victor Jara was killed at the age of 40 after being arrested and tortured for several days following the U.S.-backed coup that killed Chile's democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, to make way for the right-wing dictator, General Augusto Pinochet. You know, The 9-11 were always forgetting, while never forgetting, the other 9-11. Jara, a key figure in Chile's Nueva Canción movement, had been caught in a Chilean army roundup of reputed leftists. According to one account, his captors beat him bloody, smashed his hands, broke his fingers, and then mocked him by demanding that he play guitar. That kind of brutality, you gotta wonder if they were clan members. And yes, unsurprisingly... There, is, there are Klan organizations in South America, including in Brazil, 
And I think there's one in Chile, too. Jara responded by singing the Chilean protest song, Venceremos. His captors finally shot him dead and threw his body out in the street. Not until 2008 was anyone convicted for his murder. In the years since Jara's death, his song, since his death, his songs have been adopted as protest anthems by political activists all around the world. That's rotten history. Another reminder that Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, and Milton Friedman sucked. And that this is hell. Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Our guest tomorrow will be Christy Nabhan Warren on her book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. At least that's who we hope the guest will be because I'm having major problems downloading that book. And do we know who's going to be on Wednesday's show here at thisishell.com, also at 10 a.m.? Yes, we do. Um, On Wednesday, we'll be speaking with Zachariah Hughes on his three-part series on the collapse in Alaska-Yukon River Salmon for Alaska Daily News. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Egon and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at com. Chuck at com. If you'd like to join us here at This Is Hell, email me again, chuck at com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Friday, except on Thursdays. We take Thursdays off now. However, we are very flexible and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is an opportunity for you to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. And this possession does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind. Again, if you are interested in being a board operator on our show, contact us at chuckatthisishell.com. Thanks to our guest today, historian Suzanne Schneider, author of The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. Thanks to Jess Lipka for running the board. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is the Mexican Cure Suero, which is mineral water, lime, and salt. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.